just ask you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians. Uh, I didn't get very far this week, so I'm just going to read you the first two verses. Um, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for what we've sung of tonight, for all we've been reminded in our worship of just your grace and your mercy that reaches out to each one of us through our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Father, reach out and make each one of us aware tonight that personally, each of us is loved by you with an amazing grace. And you want each one of us to know just the depth and the greatness of your love. Speak to our hearts. Bless us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can't think of a, of a better way of introducing what I'm going to say this series on Ephesians than by sharing with you a quote from Sinclair Ferguson that in just a few wonderful sentences really sum up the scope and the purposes of this incredible letter. So here it is. If Romans is, humanly speaking, the most impressive of, Paul le- of Paul's letters, then Ephesians is probably the most elegant. In its opening dexology, blesses cascade down upon the reader. In its closing verses, the smell of the battlefield lies heavily in the air. And through the smoke of war, we see Christians still fully clad in the armor of spiritual warfare yet still standing. From beginning to end, Ephesians sets before us the wonder of God's grace, the privilege of belonging to the church, and the pattern of life transformation the gospel produces. So wow, that really is Ephesians in a nutshell. So no wonder the Probably the greatest theologian the church has produced since Paul, John Calvin, named Ephesians as his favourite letter. And John Mackay, a boy from the Highlands of Scotland, who became president of the famous Princeton Theological Seminary in the United States, he said that it was reading this letter in the Highland Hills that brought him to Christ. This is what he wrote. To this book... I owe my life. I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes to other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. Well, if Sinclair Ferguson summed up Ephesians in a nutshell in that wonderful quote, then what I intend to do in my much more limited way over the coming months is try to crack open the nut to open up with you some of the great truths that are found in this wonderful letter to the Ephesians. Now, in this first 40 of hours into this letter, all we're going to do is, is just seek to introduce it and also look at Paul's opening greeting to the Ephesians in the first two verses of this chapter. And the way that we're going to do this is by beginning by by focusing in on two relatively minor points 
and then finishing tonight by concentrating on the main thrust of the teaching we find in these two verses. But you know, having just given Ephesians banner headlines, having just shared quotes from leading figures in church history that make it clear what a fantastic section of God's Word they see this as being, well then it might surprise you that the first point that I want to look at with you now is controversy. Because you see, there is an area of controversy around the letter to the Ephesians. In that while Paul was universally accepted as the author of this letter from the 1st to the 19th century, yet from the 19th century, there's been a strong body of support within academic circles for the view that this letter wasn't in fact actually written by Paul. In fact, such is the debate that surrounds this that Harold Honer, in his commentary in Ephesians, the best that I've ever used, that he devotes 16 pages of this commentary to listing the titles and authors of books and articles related just to this subject alone, the authorship of Ephesians. You see, the premise is that that rather than being written by Paul, that, that this was written after Paul's death as a kind of tribute to Paul by a devoted follower, with one name suggested being Onesimus, the runaway slave who's central to the letter of Philemon, someone who came under Paul's protection and who it's reckoned may well have become Bishop of Ephesus towards the end of the first century. Now, now rather than simply just dismiss this out of hand as a temptation, let me first of all say to you that there are some unusual features about Ephesians that you could understand might lead someone with a lower view of the inspiration of the Bible to this kind of conclusion. Like, for instance, chief among these, the fact that Ephesians seems to lack the personal features that are found in Paul's other letters. You see, there's a complete lack of any mention of individuals within the church in this letter. Also, he doesn't seem to be addressing in this letter any particular problems that are peculiar to this church. So it's said then that this letter's got more the feel of a sermon that's, that's been written to a general group rather than a letter that's written into a particular setting, which is surprising in that Paul wrote this letter according to the traditional and long accepted view, along with Philippians, Colossians and Philemon, towards the end of his ministry during his first Roman imprisonment. But you see, that that being the case, he had then, by this time, visited Ephesus twice. The first visit that's recorded in Acts 18, 19 to 21 was certainly a short visit, but his second visit that we can read of in Acts 19 and 20, that visit lasted for three years. With, a, with his eventual parting from the elders of Ephesus being marked in Acts 20 from verse 36 with hugs and kisses and tears. So how then does this fit in with the impersonal nature of Ephesians. With no individuals, no being named, no situations particular to them being addressed. Well, there are a number of 
possible different answers to this, but the best one, in my view, is that Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus, but that it was also written with a secondary view to it being sent round as a circular letter to all the other churches in the Roman province of Asia, which is the area roughly that we now call Turkey. So you see, Paul wrote to Ephesus, which was then the capital city of this Roman province. And for its time, let me say, it was a huge city of over 300,000 people, which, just to put it in context, is reckoned to be greater than the population of the whole of Scotland at that time. It was a city that contained the great temple of Diana, a temple that dwarfed the Parthenon in Athens and that was reckoned as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But you see, as well as writing to this church, placed in this great city of strategic importance, Paul also wanted to use this letter to teach and to instruct the other churches in this region. Now, while we can't definitively prove that this was the case, there is strong evidence, I believe, that points in this direction. Like, for instance, the fact that in some of the earliest Greek manuscript copies of the New Testament, the words in Ephesus are missing from this introduction here. Like the fact that in Colossians 4.16, there's, there's mention there of a letter to the church at Laodicea. Now, you see, we don't have today a particular manuscript copy of this letter to the Laodiceans. However, Marcion, who was a church leader in the second century, he, he equated the letter to the Laodiceans with Ephesians, implying then that this letter was a copy of Ephesians. And you see, I believe that that would explain why in Colossians 4.16, Paul encourages the Colossians and Laodiceans to exchange the letters they've received with him, each to read the others. But he encourages neither of them to read Ephesians. Because, you see, he wouldn't do if the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to Laodiceans were carbon copies of one another. But as well as this, though, there's another, I believe, equally fundamental argument that has to be raised against any suggestion that anyone other than Paul might be the author of Ephesians. And that is, surely it is impossible to imagine a Christian Someone who is an admirer of Paul, then falsely attributing something that they have written to Paul, and therefore claiming for their writing his authority and inspiration. And I want to say to you, I believe someone who could write something of the spiritual quality of Ephesians could not also be guilty of this kind of falsehood. Whether it was dressed up in their mind as a tribute to Paul or whatever whatever it was, they just could not do it. But also apart from all this, there's also the question of whether there was and whether there actually could be in the early church another Christian capable of writing a letter like this that bears the marks of Paul's spiritual insight and his genius. And F.F. F. Bruce, he gives his verdict on this in these words. 
the man who could write Ephesians must have been the apostle's equal, if not his superior, in mental stature and in spiritual insight. Of such a second Paul, early church history has no knowledge. Well, that's the, the first point in this introduction, then controversy. The second point, we wouldn't should have spent so much time on, is convention. And we see convention here. We see it, first of all, in, in the opening of this letter. As Paul, as he does in all his other letters, very much follows the pattern of letter writing that was current in the ancient world at that time. And yet, he takes it and he gives it a gospel twist. He Christianizes what was conventional at that time and fills it with God's grace and truth. Which is what a few minutes we'll finish by focusing in on. But you know, there's another element of convention here. Another element. In, the, in this letter, Paul here follows what one writer describes as the rules of gospel grammar. You see, just as we cannot really understand, cannot use properly any language without at least knowing the basic rules of its grammar, so Paul, it said, has a grammar. That there are rules, there's a pattern to the way that Paul writes his letters that as we grasp this, helps us to understand these letters more easily, with greater clarity. We can see just what Paul's saying. That. Now basically what this is about is, is that Paul in his letters, almost invariably, he uses the first half of his letters to focus on what God has already done for us in Christ. And then, and only then, having laid down this foundation, only then does he move on then to look at what we should do, at how we should live in response to this. Sinclair Ferguson again puts it like this. Everything he, that is Paul, urges us to do is dependent on everything he tells us God has already done. Our faithfulness is a response to God's grace. But you see, this isn't only a vital truth for us to grasp if we're going to understand Paul. No, I believe it's also an indispensable truth that needs to be in at the heart and foundation of our Christian living. If we're going to live the Christian life as God intends it to be lived. All that we do needs to be rooted in, needs to be an expression of the grace of God in our life. Because you see, it's when we lose or when we forget or ignore that connection, when we begin to do it on our own, that then the Christian life becomes a work. And it then becomes a lifeless and joyless drudgery. Well, now we'll move on to the third and final part of this introduction to Ephesians. And um, this one, keep the seas, it's calling. And it's here, as we look at this, that we get more into the meat of these two verses. And here what we're going to look at is, first of all, the call of Paul. And then the call of the Christians of the church 
at Ephesus. And first thing that we need to take note of here, I believe, is that Paul was called to be an apostle. Now you see, in, in the New Testament, the word apostle, whose basic meaning is a sent one, is a title that's used of two different groups of men. First, there are the foundational apostles. That is the twelve, the twelve who had been with the Lord during his earthly ministry and who were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. These are the two qualifications of of an apostle that are outlined for us in Acts 1, 21 and 22. However, to this number is to be added the name of Paul. Paul called directly into this ministry by Jesus on the Damascus Road in Acts 9. And Paul himself, he he recognised the unusual, unique nature of, of his particular ministry on a number of different occasions. But one prime example is found in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8, where he he describes himself there, depending on your translation, as one untimely born, one abnormally born, one born out of season. But these apostles are the foundation of the church. However, there is another group of apostles in the New Testament. Apostles who are sent ones to the churches, sent out to the churches as messengers, as missionaries, as gospel evangelists, people like Barnabas, like James, the Lord's brother, like Apollos and others. They're apostles in this sense. But you see, Paul, again, uniquely, Paul can be added to their number two. That is in in Romans 11, 13. There we see that Paul is called by Jesus to be the apostle, to be his messenger to the Gentiles. Paul then is both a foundational apostle of the church and he's also an apostle to the churches. You know, I discovered something about Paul, though, this this week that, that I'd never noticed before. And I probably... Most of you are well aware of this, but it hadn't really struck me, not, not, not at least its implications. That is that Paul's name was changed from Saul to Paul at the beginning of his first missionary journey in Acts 13. But, but you see, here's the thing. Saul is a Hebrew name, a Jewish name. And Paul is a Latin, is a Roman name. Now, so it's an understandable change because this this Roman name would be much less of a barrier when Paul was going on his missionary travels in, in Gentile lands. But you know, this name, Paul, what it actually means is small or humble. Isn't it interesting then? That the once, the formerly proud Jew by the name of Saul. That he should choose this name as he sets out on his mission to the Gentiles. 
Doesn't that, that show how his, his view of himself, how his perspective on life, how this had been totally transformed by the impact of Jesus Christ upon him? And of course, we've got to say here that, that Paul, as well as being a Jew, was also born a, a Roman citizen. So there is the possibility that he was actually given two names at his birth. Saul and Paul, because he was, in a sense, a citizen of two kingdoms. But, you know, that doesn't change the fact of Paul's new humility. As he voluntarily chose to be known by that name. The name of Paul. And what this does do though. Is, is it brings. If it's in this way. It brings to the fore. That the sovereign overruling authority of God. That God right from the beginning. Not just when Paul was born. But before Paul was born. God knew. What one day. He was going to do. In and through this man. But we're further told here about Paul's call, about his call to be an apostle. That he was called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now there are actually two complementary thoughts that are caught up in this statement. First in that, that when Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus... Well, there is within that, the, the way that it's expressed in the original, there's the idea that he is owned, that he's possessed by Jesus. But as it goes on then, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, then what that does is that simply underlines and, and just opens up what's been said, that Paul's apostleship, isn't about something that he's decided in himself to do. You know, I, I fancy that. I would like to be an apostle. It sounds good, so I'll just put my name forward. No. What this is about is, is about something much deeper, something much more significant than this. Rather that Paul is so gripped by the love of Christ. As Christ has come by faith into his life in power, he's so gripped by this that he cannot help but serve Christ. He cannot help but give himself to do what he believes Christ is calling him to do. And all this again is not rooted in, in some emotional decision that's been made by Paul. Well, there's emotion involved in it. There's no doubt of that. Yes, there is. But Paul's call is rooted ultimately in God's will, in God's plan for his life. And I believe it's this. That makes his call. And that makes his ministry. Secure. This fact that his call. Isn't rooted in his own volatile. Emotions or decisions. But rather that this is rooted. In the unchangeable. Will and plan of a God. Who is an all powerful God. Now you see I, I believe here. In fact I would say I know. That it was. The knowledge of this call. The knowledge of the nature of this Paul. It was this that enabled Paul to keep on going in ministry. Despite the opposition he suffered. Despite the rejection again and again he faced. The physical abuse and beatings that he was repeatedly on the receiving end of. And it was God's call. The fact that his life and ministry were an expression of God's call 
It was this, I believe, that in the middle of all the beatings and opposition that led Paul to know and experience the blessing of God in an incredible way. Now, we're going to say more about this element of the call of God in coming weeks. But for now, let's just finish by moving on to look at a different aspect of calling here. That is the the calling of these Christians in the church at Ephesus. And these Christians, these called ones at Ephesus are described here in two complementary ways. That is, they are called saints and they are also called the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, saints, what that basically means is holy. What it basically means is, is God's holy ones. With this in the Bible being not a, a term or a title that's re- reserved for some spiritual elite. This is an accolade that's given to some who've reached an exceptional level of spirituality or who've done some outstanding work for God. Isn't that? No, it is rather. God's call that leads to us being holy. It's about us responding to what God has done for us in Christ. That's what it's about. And it's as we we do this that then at that point we become holy. That is consecrated and sanctified in God's sight. Our holiness then, in a fundamental sense, isn't about us. It's about Christ. Our holiness is about what Christ has done. It's his status of holiness. It's this that becomes ours as we put our trust in him. But then these Christians at Ephesus are also called the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now you see, what this is about is God's people, his holy people, his saints, then living faithfully. That is in response to God's love, in response to what what God has done for us, what God has given for us in Christ, seeking then to live lives of obedience, lives of trust that are a reflection of, that are in accordance with, that tie in with the holy status that we have been given that is ours in Christ. You see, overwhelmed by Christ's love, as we should be. We are then called to live a life on earth that lines up with how God sees us now in Christ. With the status that he has given us and that is ours in heaven. But these Christians here don't only have their calling described for them and outlined for them. No, they are also told what their calling rests upon And what they're calling leads to. And it's there. There in verse 2. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father. And the Lord Jesus Christ. So then. Their calling. And our calling. Rests. On grace. Defined classically by Honor as. God's unmerited or undeserved favour. In providing salvation for sinners through Christ's sacrificial death. 
I love this final part of his definition. His definition of grace. It is the gospel in one word. The gospel in one word. All that we have, all that we are, our calling and everything else that flows from it, it rests on this. It rests on grace. That the Father sent the Son, that the Son willingly came. In amazing love, in amazing grace. To die on the cross. To give his perfect, holy, sinless life. In order to pay the price of our sin. The price of our decision to rebel. To turn away from God and go our own way. That sin that separates us from a holy God now. And that leaves us at the end of time facing only his judgment. Jesus died on the cross to pay for that sin. To pay for our sin. To remove from us, to take from us its penalty and the prospect of impending judgment. And it was all because of grace. An act of unmerited, undeserved love. That's what they're calling. That's what our calling. That's what the fact that today, by faith, we can call ourselves Christians if we have faith in Christ. This is what it rests on. The grace of God. And what it leads to is peace. The English translation of the wonderful Hebrew word shalom. A word which means complete well-being. Which means peace with God that then leads to peace within and that then further leads us and enables us to live at peace with our fellow man. This is the effect of God's calling. This is what God's grace enables, what it brings into our lives. And so much of the second half of Ephesians is about how this should actually work its way out practically. It's about the new unity, the reconciled community, the transformed lives that the grace and peace of God, the calling of God, should lead us into. And so John Stott, he says here, if we want a concise summary of the good news which the whole letter of Ephesians announces, we could not find a better one than the three monosyllables. Peace through grace. This is what we're going to be opening up together over the coming months. But for tonight, let me just finish with one final word. That is, if you're here tonight and you're desperately seeking for peace, because for one reason or another, for whatever reason, you find yourself anxious and afraid. Then I want to say to you, remember that real peace, true peace, only comes through the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The only way to find peace is by trusting in God's grace. You'll never work your way to it. You'll never earn it. The only way is by putting your trust, putting your faith in what God in his grace has done for you in Jesus Christ. 
And then you've got to go on to live in it. You've got to go on to live it out. Or you'll use the reality of this experience. You've got to live in grace. You know, you've got to live your life trusting in grace, relying on grace, continually seeking to express grace in your life. You've got to do that. If you are going to know, as God wants you to know, the peace of Jesus, my prayer is, may we be a people of grace and peace. May the grace and peace of Jesus flow from our lives and touch all who are around us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Let's come in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the truth of your word. We want to thank you for the foundation of our Christian lives, that it's all founded in grace and peace. It's all founded in that love of Jesus that we can never merit or deserve, that love that through faith breaks into our life and that brings peace to our hearts, that means peace with you, peace within, and that then as we seek to live in grace, gives us the power we need to live at peace with one another. Father, if there's any way that we're hindering the grace of Jesus in our life, if there's any sin that we're holding, any attitude or resentment that we're refusing to let go of, Lord, help us to see that tonight. Help us to repent of it. Help us to deal with it. That we might live in the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. Amen.